Kingdom, their ministry. Father, we pray for L.J. Bailey, and Lord, just what a, what a great report I got this morning from his dad, and just pray for him, Father, as he leads these kids and mentors them and prepares them, and leaving in a couple of months, we just pray a special hedge of protection around that team. What a blessing it is to hear that. Father, we, uh, we think of the offering that we're about ready to take, and you have really, really blessed this church financially, and we just pray that we would not take that for granted and that we would continue to worship you through our giving and that we would be able to use that to support not only this congregation but others. Father, finally, we pray for Chad and the, the sermon coming up that you bless that and just looking forward to hearing more about John. We thank you in your name, we pray, amen. Come on, there we go. Good morning, everybody, glad you're here today. Uh, one more thing I wanna mention is we're doing the car winterization again this year. So this is a, a service that we do for the widows and single moms. If you have a vehicle that you would like to get prepped for the winter, uh, the men's ministry here would like to help you out. Now, the way you do that is by filling out one of these forms. You can find it out on the welcome desk. Uh, provide the information there. And then on November 6th, someone will come to your house, pick up your car, take it, get it serviced, fill it up with gas, and bring it back to your house. Now, to make that happen, we also need a few mechanics out there. So on the other side of the same form is uh, for men or women who would like to be a mechanic for this. We've got some uh, needs out there. If you can turn a wrench, change oil, that kind of a thing, uh, please fill this out. We also need drivers. Actually, we primarily need drivers to go out and pick up the cars and bring them uh, over to the shop. We'll be doing this over at Valley Honda again. So, car winterization, November 6th. There's a Scottish, there's a Scottish theologian. And by the way, if you've never heard a Scottish theologian speak, go out on the internet and find one. Sinclair Ferguson is a good one. And that Scottish accent just has an extra punch to it. And this guy, Sinclair Ferguson, he did a, a survey of the land of the church over the past few decades. And he made a statement about it. And he said, when we look back on what the masters of the spiritual life have written and said, <clears throat> he said, it's hard to escape the conclusion that we have been the victim of a confidence trick in our century. He said over the past few decades, the evangelical church, that's all of us, that's everybody sitting in this room right now, has been gripped by a series of issues and concerns that have primarily been marginal or at best of secondary importance. Conferences, seminars, and books on a whole series of quote-unquote vital concerns have dominated center stage and determined the agenda in many churches and for many individual Christians. And this is the part that haunts me. But strikingly absent has been concentration on God himself. Indeed, on the rare occasions when this absence has not been the case, we have set up to take notice as though something out of the ordinary were being said. And I think he's hitting the nail on the head. 
There's a number of vital concerns, quote-unquote vital concerns, that people are struggling with today. Not to say they are unimportant, but comparatively unimportant when we talk about God himself. Subject of politics or pandemic politics, and I know, believe me, I know it is difficult to navigate the waters that we are in right now. We are in strange times. And unfortunately, it creates barriers. It creates barriers within, and it creates even larger barriers, I'm afraid, between the church and those without the church. On matters that have nothing to do with God. Something else I wanted to share with you, this was uh, written by Philip Yancey who realizes there's a world out there that has opinions and beliefs diametrically opposed to our own, and yet we are called to engage them. Yancey said this in an article for Christianity Today. He said, diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. But he went on to say this, when I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, he said, the more uncomfortable I feel. And the question I want to talk about this morning is, how do I engage the world? How do I engage the world? If Christ says we are to be known by our love, what does that even look like? And this morning in this book of John, for the second time, we're going to see Jesus engage an unbeliever. He's already engaged Nicodemus. Now he's going to engage this woman he finds at a well. In Samaria. Interestingly, Nicodemus uh, was the eminent representative of Orthodox Judaism. And in that interview they had, he was the one who stood for a class that was wholeheartedly despised by anyone who was not an Orthodox Jew. And Jesus himself stood for a class of people despised by Orthodox Judaism. And then from the point of view of the Orthodox Jew, there were three strikes against a woman Jesus is going to engage with in the chapter we're about to hear read this morning. She was a Samaritan, a woman, and a sexual sinner. However, this Samaritan woman, this one by the well, is also a timeless figure. And I believe represents most every person in some way in the world today. And because so much of this passage is from the voice of the woman at the well, we're going to have a woman uh, read the passage this morning. Jenny Reed is going to come up and read verses 1 through 6 of John chapter 4. She herself has not been married four times, by the way. No. She's <laughs> but a great reader, and uh, we're going to read our passage this morning. Now... When Jesus learned that the Pharisees... Could you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My bad. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied 
as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? But Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thank you, Jenny. Wow. And she's not been married five times either, by the way. It's <laughs> going to be clear on that. So you heard the passage. And again, in the book of John, Jesus is being presented as a living hope. People in need of hope back then, much like people are in need of hope today. And this morning I want to talk about this subject. How do I engage a world? Because we see it there in the example of Christ. Engaging a woman that socially he should have had no business talking to. He had no, nothing to gain from being with her in the eyes of so many in his culture. 
So I want to take a look at this pattern of engagement that Jesus has with this woman and talk about how we can also engage people with whom we have little in common. And we start out like this. We'll talk about breaking down the barriers. We'll talk about these barriers Jesus pushed through and our need to push down barriers to talk to people in the world. And then secondly, Jesus makes this offer of life that we want to make to the world as well. We'll also see that Jesus stayed on target. She tried to take the conversation in a different direction at one point. And if you've ever tried to talk to someone about Christ, you'll find yourself there too. And then finally talking about showing the world Christ's love. How do we show the world the love of Christ? So let's start there um, in the the first few verses. Because it explains how Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees is beginning to shape. But it's not yet time for Jesus to go into conflict with them. So he's going to move elsewhere right now. He's going to make his way up to Galilee. But to get there, he's got to move through this region of Samaria. And Galilee is just north of Samaria. Jesus is in Judea at this time. And the text says, almost like with a dun-dun-dun-dun kind of a feel, and he had to pass through Samaria. It was a big deal. It's quite significant because there's a lot of history here that we need to understand is going on. Because what's this big deal with Samaria? And the people of Samaria have a very interesting history with the Jews. Some important things to understand, and one of the most important things to understand about them, and one of the reasons the Jews despise them is because they were of mixed race. Historically, way back around 722 uh, B.C., a an empire, the Assyrian Empire, came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. But didn't take all of the Jews away. Some of them were left. And that area became this sort of uh, deposit for exiled people. The Assyrians would just keep moving foreigners into that area, and they were intermarrying with those Jews that were there. So there were really none left of strict historic lineage, Jewish lineage. That area right now, it's actually um, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. As a matter of fact, if you remember, uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. There was, uh, Nineveh is right there in Mosul. There's a shrine built to Jonah, as a matter of fact, in Mosul, Iraq. But that happened some seven centuries before the story that we read this morning. And that remnant stayed there. They intermarried, and most of them began worshiping pagan gods as well. That goes back to the book of 2 Kings 17 and 18. And then the Jews who returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile, Babylonians, if you recall, they came back and destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel. After that, when they had exiled those Jews, they came back, and uh, the, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem after that exile considered the Samaritans to be, they would refer to them as half-breeds. And the Samaritans resisted any attempt later on and uh, after the time they were exiled when the Jews were coming back, they resisted any attempt to build the walls. If you know from the book of Nehemiah, when they were going to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, the Samaritans resisted that. They didn't want those walls to be built. They also built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans only acknowledged the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, They didn't consider the rest of the Old Testament to be inspired or or part of their canon, their Bible. So they didn't acknowledge the part about David being commissioned to build a temple in Jerusalem. They said that wasn't their temple. 
In addition to that, they also took up arms against the Jews in Jerusalem in the intertestamental period between the time of the prophet Malachi and before the coming of Christ. So there were huge divisions. And that's just because she was a Samaritan. The Jews didn't talk to the Samaritans. There's this checkered history. They hated each other. It's honestly like the relationship between the Jews and the Nazis after the Holocaust. Now, it's no accident that Jesus intentionally went somewhere where no Jew would ordinarily go. So first of all, he broke down these barriers. Now, let me ask you something. What is your Samaria? What is that place where you know people need to know the love of Christ, but you know that you have absolutely nothing in common with them? That's the question you have to ask. Now, you may be entering it every day. It may be your workplace. It may be family reunions. It could be any number of things. People that you are going to be around that you know need to know the love of Christ. Don't let these barriers, these seemingly social barriers, these differences of opinion on any subject that could be out there, be a barrier between you and these people that you know need to receive the love of Christ. That's the example we have in Jesus. She was a woman. Jews did not speak to women in, 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 in any context like this, one-on-one. -on -one. She was a Samaritan. And there were other barriers as well that he's going to address. Let's keep on going, because secondly, we also have this offer of life. We have this offer of life. So look at what Jesus says to this woman. He begins by making statements to her. And she wants her to ask questions. He's saying things that she knows, he knows she's not fully going to get. And this is very similar to how he approached Nicodemus. Remember, he told Nicodemus, you must be born from above. And Nicodemus didn't get it. He starts asking questions. And in this last section, the woman could tell that he was a Jew. And she was kind of annoyed with him. And she seems equally annoyed after this next exchange, uh, starting in verse 10. Uh, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Now notice she doesn't ask what living water is. Because living water was, was thought of as flowing water. But in the past, God uses a picture of water to describe life that's nourished by God. As a matter of fact, in the book of Jeremiah, it says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God is the source of this spiritual life and spiritual renewal. And any other avenue has to be rejected. This woman had dug her own cistern, and she's looking for these men to provide her with only what God can give. And she asks, where, where to find this living water? And I gather that she might have even been poking fun at him by saying this. Like, yeah, right, okay. It's like, okay, yeah, right, where's this clown suit that Kevin's going to wear for this uh, upcoming talent night? So, where is it? Where is this living water she's asking about? 
probably thinking he's some kind of a quack. And this is similar to Jesus telling Nicodemus, what? That you must be born again. Now they're sitting in a well, a well that was dug by Jacob. Uh, it's one of Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, and even though she's of mixed race, Jacob was still her patriarch. And she's saying, so you're telling me you're greater than Jacob, our patriarch. And he explains what this water is going to do. He says it's the only source of eternal life. And now he brings a conversation to himself. And what does the woman say in verse 15? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't know exactly what it is. She knows that she wants it. But Jesus is now going to take the conversation in a completely different direction, and he's going to raise the stress levels. He says to her, call her husband. Culturally, if you were going to share something like this, a, a, a truth with, with a woman, uh, her husband needed to be there and needed to be present. She explains that she's not married. And now he proceeds to reveal himself. He says, I know you have no husband. You've had five, though. And your current man is not your husband. The stress levels are going up. And she knows that he knows her sin, that her past has now been unmasked. And Jesus miraculously reveals her past. And she's broken this moral code within her own community. She's no doubt ostracized by the women in her community. That's why she's coming to the well at this time of day to avoid those other women, even though it's hotter at this time of day. She didn't want to feel their scorn and their judgment. Now think about what Nicodemus did. What time did he come to Jesus? He came at night. He came in a cover of darkness. He wanted to avoid the shame of his religious brothers. And she's coming to the well at a time to avoid the shame of other people. That's what happens when we come to Christ. Part of it is acknowledging our own sin. Her private life and sin, they've now been exposed. And she can walk away if she wants to. But she doesn't. That's part of the journey of salvation. And as Christians, we've got to confront the fact of our sin and, and, and that it both exists, that we need forgiveness for it. So when we engage the world, we don't ignore the fact of sin. As a matter of fact, it may come up in the process of talking with someone about what they may believe. And, and you may need to say something that's like, yeah, you know, just like me, you're a sinner. Just like me. And Jesus obviously didn't say that. He doesn't avoid the subject. In that manner, Christians both love and comfort the people in the world, but that's not always comfortable. But Jesus is demonstrating his love in this situation because of his engagement and the offer that he's making. And she's understanding what he's going through and how he could be perceived by just talking to her, and that's ministering to her. And the woman tries to divert the conversation then, which brings us to this next point of staying on target. You've got to stay on target. And watch how Jesus stays on target here. She says, well, you must be a prophet because you know all these things that I've done. Uh, and the Samaritans acknowledge no prophet after Moses. Remember, they just, they just believe those first five books of the Bible. 
but they did believe that there was one coming that was going to be the Messiah. That's from Deuteronomy 18, 18. So for her to speak of Jesus as a prophet was to move into this area that she could be speculating he could be the Messiah. So then she brings up an old controversy between Jews and Samaritans. And it's this, this idea of well, where is the proper place to worship. In Deuteronomy 12, 5, God had said that his people were to seek the place that he would choose among their tribes where he would dwell among them. So when the Jews came into the promised land, there would be a place that God would specify. This was going to be Mount Gerizim. And they accepted that, these Samaritans, as the place where they should worship. However, later on, God commands David to build a temple in Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 7. But those people didn't acknowledge the book of Samuel, so they stuck to what it said originally. And they only acknowledged, again, the authority of those first five books. So they believed that Mount Gerizim was the place that God had appointed for worship. They based their belief on the fact, again, that when they entered the promised land, they would worship on Mount Gerizim. So what does Jesus do? He sees what's happening. He's, now she's bringing her own uh, religion into it. And he sees the trap she's trying to lay. So he avoids the temptation to abandon the discussion of living water. That is so important. He says, look, I'm not going there. And he explains things to her. He told the woman the real issue is not where God's people had worshipped in the past, he said, it's about how you're going to worship in the future. And that was an important issue since the Messiah had come, that, that he was going to terminate. As a matter of fact, it came up in the conversation in a, in a prior chapter that when Jesus went to the temple, he said, look, I'm going to tear down the temple. And that would happen in 70 AD. He was talking about his own body, but he would be resurrected. This temple would not. And he said, people are going to worship in spirit and truth, and it won't matter where, this mountain or that mountain. He said, that's not going to be the issue. And Jesus urged her to believe him. She'd already acknowledged him as a prophet. And Jesus' conversation with the woman unfolds, and he won't let himself get sidetracked by any secondary issues. He continues to press his interest in her personal life, her ethnicity, her religious history, her gender, He's not going to let them become barriers. Why? Because he knows that she needs living water. This will often happen if you try to talk to someone about God or Christianity or spiritual things. They will bring all kinds of stuff into that conversation. Uh, I was on a, a bus one time, and uh, I, was, I was sharing. There was a woman sitting on the, on the other side of the aisle, and we started talking. We started talking about Christianity, and immediately... We launched into a discussion about Islam. Well, I wasn't there to talk about Islam. But uh, if you're sharing the gospel with, with uh, someone who has an Islamic background, they may bring up the state of Israel and a whole minefield of problems there. Someone may bring up, well, what about gays in the church and try to make that the issue and the point of contention? Someone might bring up the issue of women. Well, don't evangelicals put down women? Or some political topic. Don't get sidetracked. There's hundreds of sentences that people bring into this to deflect the real issue at hand. Jesus is going to have none of it. Now, it would be nice to be omniscient, right? 
But these conversations, you know, the age of the earth, let me tell you, that's, that is not a conversation to have in that moment. We learn in John 4.10, he's got his double agenda. Do you know Christ, and are you going to drink his living water? Not every one of us is going to be comfortable with Jesus' strategy because he's challenging this woman's, all her presuppositions, but he's showing care in her life. He's showing care about her background, and he gently uncovers her sin. It's not easy to engage the world, but it's something we're commanded to do. So then how do we show the world Christ's love? Just very quickly, three ways. First of all, first of all, you engage. Engage. Be willing to, to talk with someone that you know doesn't believe what you believe, that you know may have a completely different opinion than you do. I had a, a neighbor when I lived back in West Virginia that had a, a huge political sign in her front yard. She knew I did not like this particular presidential candidate at the time. And she loved to bring up how wonderful he was in front of me. Now, I didn't, I didn't pretend that I was in agreement with her, but I also didn't let that sidetrack things. I still would reach out to her. I made sure she knew that I was not going to let that be a barrier between us. I didn't care. Her biggest problem was not her political candidate. Her biggest problem was she didn't know Christ. And I come from fundamentalist roots, and if you're familiar with that term, fundamentalism, uh, you know, got its, its name because of the fundamentals of the faith, you know. Jesus is God, and he died on the cross for our sins, pretty important stuff. But then that movement just became about a list of do's and don'ts. You can do this. Have you ever wondered why your, maybe your parents or grandparents had this huge issue with playing cards? It was out of fundamentalism. Um, and, and engaging with the world is something that didn't come very comfortably for me. You know, I kind of was grown up in this Christian bubble, and they were very good at telling you to be in the world but not of the world. But it was, it was, um, be in the world but not of the world kind of a thing. The emphasis was always on the not being of the world. But I'm telling you, engage the world. You know what? Go and do something that maybe you're not comfortable doing. When they have that block party in your neighborhood and you're like, I know they're going to be carrying on in ways I just don't carry on. Well, listen, I'm going to encourage you to go. Uh, now, if you've got an issue with alcoholism in your background and you know you cannot be around it, you're going to be tempted to fall, then don't do it. If that's the case, find some other way. But I would encourage you to, to be there. Be around people who don't believe what you believe. I try to avoid people uh, telling people off the bat that I'm a pastor because sometimes it just shuts down anything else. Uh, you know, it means they, you know, well, I've got to stop cussing. Got to be very careful about what I'm saying here. And you know, well, I work at a church. I uh, I, I do a lot of speaking, that kind of a thing. And um, but engage. Uh, Show the world you love them by engaging them. And then secondly, explain. Explain. Explain what? Look at the time Jesus is taking with this lady. Explain to her the gospel. Let it be an interruption. 
A couple weeks ago, I spent, I spent almost three hours with a couple that I, I didn't know how my day was going to go, but they had an interest in the gospel. They were missing a vital piece of it. They didn't understand how the relationship of works went with faith. And we talked about it and talked about it. You know, I will spend as long as I need to. If someone shows an interest in spiritual things, this is a golden opportunity. And if someone who doesn't believe what you believe is willing to listen to you, man, take advantage of that. Explain what you believe. Now you've got to know what you believe. But I guarantee you, you know more than you think you know. And no, you don't have to understand all the implications of the age of the earth or you don't have to understand every other religion out there, don't, go, don't let this conversation get sidetracked. And then finally, expect. Expect. But what do you expect? Expect God to do what God will do. It takes a miracle for people to come to save in faith. You don't know what role you're playing when you start talking to somebody. Later on in uh, verse 38 of the same chapter, Jesus is going to explain to the disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered their labor. You don't know what you're doing. I mean, you may be planting the seed. You may be harvesting the seed. You don't know. But the point is engage. And then expect God to do what God is going to do. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. That person may walk away. Keep praying for him. Nicodemus walked away. We have no assurance of what he believed. The Samaritan woman, very different. We'll see the evidence of her faith coming up as we go through this chapter. So putting this all together, risk your time and comfort to engage the world for Christ. Take a risk. You're not responsible for how people respond. But engage. Plow and pursue Again, uh, this world engagement is something that, uh, yeah, I'm not always comfortable with it. I'm, I'm more comfortable now than I used to be. And as I've watched other people do it, as I've watched other people do it, I've become more comfortable with it. And there was, there was a gentleman, and I'm not going to say any names. I will say he's a, an older gentleman at our church. And he was asked recently um, to sit down with a group of young people. And um, it was a group of young people, they were teenagers that were very much struggling with their sexual identity. And they were very much wanting to sit down and understand what Christians believe more deeply. Now, why was he invited into that circle? It wasn't because he was far off. It wasn't because he was disengaged from people that believed differently than him. And it wasn't that he was afraid to call sin, sin either. But he's willing to step into a different group and love them with the love of Christ. So don't be afraid to engage an unbelieving world. They're desperate for love. Desperate for it, and we can show it to them. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that the world would see Christ in us. And God, I pray that we would engage. God, give us the courage to enter the Samaria that you're putting in front of us. Right here in the community of Sheridan. Places where we can sit down and we can have conversations with people with very different opinions and very different backgrounds. And God, I know I didn't always engage at all. And Lord, there were plenty of times where I really messed up some big chances. God, I thank you for giving me more chances. And God, I pray that our church would have more chances. 
to talk to and engage with an unbelieving world. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example. You engage the unbelieving religious people, the unbelieving unreligious people. Give us the courage to do the same. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of peace will be with you. I want to remind you this morning that it's when we take our elder fund, you'll see a few gentlemen standing with plates by the doors. That's the money we use to help out people in need within our body. If you're in need of prayer, you can also come to the front. I'll be up here with another elder, and we'd be happy to pray with you for whatever issue you may be facing. Otherwise, have a wonderful day, and we'll see you soon.